Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. African countries urged to embrace the African peer review mechanism and G20 foreign affairs ministers meet in Argentina. In economics news, US and China halt imposing import tariffs. And in sports news, South Africa thrash Mozambique and under-20 AFCON qualifier. But first up the news with Ed Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. At least 22 people have been killed and others are still missing following torrential rains from a tropical cyclone that hit Somalia. The governor of Audal in Somaliland, Abdurrahman Ahmed Ali, says at least 15 people were killed in the region. Three others were also swept away by floods, according to local media. The tropical cyclone has also destroyed 41 homes in the town. The United Nations says heavy rains continue to fall across Somalia and the Ethiopian highlands. Ethiopia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has denied accusations of its supporting Eritrean rebel movements. The Eritrea Ministry of Information last week issued a press statement accusing neighboring nations, Sudan and Ethiopia, of conspiring to support Eritrean rebel groups. The statement further said Ethiopia and Sudan have agreed to deploy Eritrean armed opposition groups along the two countries' borders with Eritrea to facilitate attacks. Ethiopia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson Melez Alim says the allegations by Eritrea are totally false. Health workers in the Democratic Republic of Congo are beginning a vaccination campaign aimed at containing an outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus. 4,000 doses of vaccine have been shipped to the city of Mandaka. Last week, the city registered its first cases of the disease in an urban area since the outbreak was declared earlier this month. This brings the total number of Ebola cases to 44, with three confirmed, 20 probable and 21 suspected. There have been at least 23 deaths. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says it's receiving a number of applications by new political parties to contest the 2019 general elections. The IEC's Chief Electoral Officer, Seyma Mabolo, says so far about 15 new political parties have registered. He says the Commission is implementing plans to deliver successful elections. We now have over 500 political parties. And they, we are processing a number of new others that are, are coming on board. I think on average uh, per week we are processing three applications. Since the beginning of the year, we probably have uh, registered about uh, 15 or so new parties. As regards readiness, um, 
days. He has put uh, its plans for 2019. We are beginning the process to implement uh, those plans. And finally, Kenya's Director of Criminal Investigation says more than 40 people have been summoned for questioning in connection with what he describes as a massive theft of public funds. George Kinoti says government officials and business people will be questioned. Last week, investigators said 100 million U.S. dollars had been stolen from the National Youth Service. The BBC's Mary Harper reports. Mr. Kinoti said government officials and business people would be questioned in connection with what he described as the scam and the fraud. He said court proceedings would begin within days. The alleged corruption involved fictitious invoices and multiple payments for the same goods and services. This is not the first time the National Youth Service, which is supposed to help create jobs for the young, has been hit by scandal. There were allegations of graft in 2015. Although President Uhuru Kenyatta has vowed to crack down on corruption, it continues to seep through every section of society. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. There's growing concern for the safety of a Sudanese girl who has been sentenced to hang for fatally stabbing the man she was forced to marry after allegedly being raped by him and suffering other gender-based violence. UN Human Rights Office spokesperson Ravina Shamdasani says her office is acutely concerned for the lawyer and friends of Noura Hussein Hamad Daoud, who is appealing against her death sentence by a Sudanese court, which failed to take into account the serious abuse she suffered. Domestic violence and marital rape are not criminal offences in Sudan. Shamda Sani has called on the Sudanese government to guarantee better protection of women's rights. Miss Hussein was forced to get married at an early age when she was about 15 years old. She then apparently fled um, and she was convinced by her family to return. Upon her return, she was forced to marry this man. Now, what we understand is that she was raped by her husband on one occasion. And then on the second occasion, when he attempted to rape her, she stabbed him to death. Now, this is obviously a very tragic case. But we understand that the courts in Sudan have not taken into consideration the the fact that she killed her husband in self-defense. She has now been sentenced to death, and the trial was just ridden with procedural flaws. So what we are asking for is we are asking the Sudanese government to ensure that the fact that she committed this crime in a bid to defend herself has to be taken into consideration. UN human rights mechanisms have been very clear on this. They say that the imposition of the death penalty against clear evidence of self-defense would constitute an arbitrary killing on the part of the state. What can we know about the legal process that is taking place right now? Is there any effort to appeal the decision? Yes, well, Ms. Hussain has been given 15 days to appeal the decision. And again, we, we need to be very clear here. Quite often, appeals are carried out only on procedures, on the formal or the legal aspects of the conviction, without any consideration of the fact. Now, we need to point out that this is not sufficient. International law requires that the facts of the case need to be considered, particularly given the death in the initial trial.
And what is the latest on Ms. Hussein herself and how is her mental state? Well, unfortunately, we are acutely concerned about her safety. Her lawyer had tried to hold a press conference yesterday and we understand that he was banned from doing so. We are very concerned about her safety and we are calling on the authorities to ensure her physical and psychological integrity during detention. We just would like to stress as well that this is an opportunity for the Sudanese authorities to send a clear message that gender-based violence will not be tolerated in the country. What can you say about the gender-based violence in Sudan? Does the law actually protect women against it? No, indeed, we have serious concerns generally about the situation of women's human rights in Sudan. The many different human rights mechanisms have emphasized the negative impact of early and forced marriages on the rights of women, on girls' health, education, and their social development. The other issue in law is that marital rape is actually still not a criminal offense. We are calling on the government of Sudan to criminalize marital rape, better protection of women's rights, and to use this as an opportunity to reform its laws and practices. The criminalization of marital rape could save many lives and could have prevented the kind of terrible outcome that there was in Hussein's case. And we, the UN Human Rights Office, we stand ready to work with the government of Sudan on bringing its laws in line with human rights standards. Is there any actions being taken on a country level to combat gender-based violence, particularly in Sudan right now? The magnitude of the problem is huge. The minimum age of marriage in Sudan at the moment is 10 years. So there is discrimination and uh, shortcomings uh, in the protection of women's human rights, both in law and in practice at the state level, uh, but also at the level of individuals. It will take a lot of work to raise awareness and to ensure that women's rights are respected across the board in society. Now, in a case like Hussein's, it it really lays bare um, all the challenges that are there. And what is the appeal of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights to the student government on Ms. Hussein's case in particular? We have several issues that we would urge the government of Sudan to act on. One is to make sure that Ms. Hussein is protected, and that her physical and psychological integrity are protected. Two, we ask for full respect for her rights to a fair trial and to her appeal. Three, we're making a broader call on the government to ensure that its laws and practices are brought into line with international human rights laws and standards. That's Ravina Shamdasani, spokesperson at the UN Human Rights Office, speaking to Michelle Kasumi. It is 8.10 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. With consensus on sensitive issues such as Iran, Syria or the Palestinians appearing elusive, G20 foreign ministers will focus on the fight against terrorism and climate change when they meet on Monday in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The talks will seek to strengthen cooperation on the big issues on the international agenda, in particular the fight against terrorism and the fight against climate change. South Africa will use its participation at the G20 meeting to, among other things, advance the country's economic interests and to promote and strengthen the interests of the African continent. South Africa's International Relations and Cooperation Deputy Minister Llewellyn Landers tells us more. Experts on foreign relations have opined that the G20 is probably the most influential and significant platform, uh, multilateral platform, at the moment. It supersedes, according to them, uh, the United Nations and, in particular, the UN Security Council. And so its, its uh, discussions and decisions 
uh, are highly valued. And so South Africa being the only uh, member state from the African continent has a key role to play as usual in ensuring that matters that affect the continent are addressed and uh, solutions sought. Uh, in addition to that, the G20 has now expanded its role to not just deal with matters of finance and the economy uh, of the world and uh, of member states, but also on conflict situations such as those taking place in Syria, Yemen and uh, Israel-Palestine. And so its decisions on these matters are highly valued and uh, so we all look forward to the outcomes of uh, this minister's meeting of the G20. The G20 has on more than one occasion expressed its support for both Agenda 2030 and Agenda 2063. An important facet of those two uh, is infrastructure development in particular in Africa and on the African continent. It is for us uh, to make or to stress the importance of this matter within the G20 and to persuade other member states to buy in on the matter. Wherever we go, in whichever forum we are represented, we make it very clear that we are here, yes, in our individual capacity as the Republic of South Africa, but also where there are no African states also represented, then what we try to do is get together with our African brothers and sisters and elicit from them how we can assist them in a particular forum, such as the G20. And so that is what will happen. In the case of the BRICS summit that is taking place in July, I am aware that there are certain key African leaders who will be invited to attend. And this is an example of how we play an important role in these, in these forums. That's South Africa's International Relations and Cooperation Deputy Minister Llewellyn Landers speaking there about South African participation in the G20 Foreign Ministers meeting taking place in Buenos Aires, Argentina today. It is 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Monday, May the 21st, the 141st day of 2018 with 224 days left in the year. Now let's go back in time to today in the year 2011. President Alassane Ouattara is inaugurated as Ivory Coast president in a stately ceremony in the capital, Yamoussoukro, after a six-month battle with his predecessor, Laurent Gbagbo, who refused to admit defeat after 10 years in power and nearly dragged the West African nation into civil war. Barbara Plett tells us more. The Paris Agreement has been hailed as the world's first groundbreaking climate change deal. It's a voluntary commitment by countries to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and to limit the rise of the global temperature by no more than 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Implementation guidelines for the agreement are currently being finalized. In light of this, environment ministers from South Africa, India, Brazil and China have announced their desire to ensure that these are ratified at COP24 in Poland later this year. 
Under-Secretary-General for the Environment, Energy and Science and Technology of the Brazilian Minister of External Relations, Antonio Marcondes, says no country is exempt from the daily repercussions of climate change. We have uh, a four-day ration, four days without water uh, in Brasilia, the capital city of Brazil, because of water stress. So we need to identify ways and means through public policies and people changing their habits and industries also need to find means of changing their patterns of production. As of today, the world temperature average has already gone roughly one degree above the average. Similarly, South African Environment Minister Edna Molewa says erratic weather patterns are being felt, especially by the most vulnerable and rural communities. We know that when it rains too hard, when there are floods, when there are disasters, the people who are part of our affluent society are actually able to get their umbrellas or cover under the roofs and so forth. Those who are in formal settlements, the poorest of the poor, are the ones who are affected. People do know now that the effects of climate change are here with us. Malewa also responded to questions around South Africa's intention to pursue more nuclear energy in its mix. She says government is entirely behind nuclear energy with safe practices. We have coal, we have gas, we have nuclear. We're expecting a production of 9,000 megawatts. 2023 there about a first phase there of uh, kicking in that's in terms of the expectation and the policy imperatives by the way in the slides that we are sitting in right now there is nuclear so it's not as if it will be a new thing our concern in nuclear is the waste how we dispose your waste those are the dangerous stuff that we always have to have our eye on it remains to be seen whether the world will ratify and essentially put into action the paris agreement all roads now lead to COP24 in heavily coal-dependent Poland in December this year. I'm Minoshni Pale in Durban. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Former African leaders have called on current leaders on the continent to promote practically universal accession and implementation of the African Peer Review Mechanism, the APRM, to foster peace and security in the region. Former President Benjamin Mkapa of Tanzania, Tabombeki of South Africa and Hassan Sheikh Mohamud of Somalia said on Friday in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, that APRM was found to be an essential tool for ensuring good governance, strong national-level governance and inclusiveness. Gabriel Zakaria reports from Dar es Salaam. Speaking after a two-day meeting held in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania to deliberate on the theme Africa and the Global Peace and Security Architecture, the former leaders say they would like to encourage the current leaders to promote that unique Africa-initiated instrument that undertakes periodic peer reviews of African countries to strengthen and improve political, social and economic governance. Thabo Mbeki, former president of South Africa, urged sitting African leaders from the continent to come together and solve their differences once emerge misunderstanding between politicians and citizens instead of waiting for intervention from outside the continent. So in fact there were three major topics. Or to look at them closely, to try and produce something practical, and as the statement says, 
in order to feed those results into the processes taking place at the African Union about looking at this matter of actually moving forward. You know what the African Union calls silencing the guns by 2020. Practically to move not as a, as a wish, but as something that will actually achieve. That is why these two countries, and that's why the limited agenda, but it has a, got a continental impact. Founded in the year 2003, the African Peer Review Mechanism is a mutually agreed instrument voluntarily acceded to by the member states of the African Union as a self-monitoring mechanism. The organ is acting like a whistleblower to remind the continental leaders to perform their leadership according to their constitution. Former President of Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mohamud, wants those who break their constitution to remain in power. Respecting the the constitution and leading through the constitution is a major important factor for leading a nation out of a crisis that it is. Three important aspects that African leaders or in general principal leaders has to adore is to come to the power through a legal means, rule the country through a legal means, and leave the office through legal means. With that three aspects available in, among the African leaders, I think the continent would have been... And politics is the center, the epicenter of the crisis in Africa. And politics without principled leadership, it's not going to be a politics, it's going to be something else. So, constitutions, can we design and develop uh, constitutions that re represent the aspirations of the people? The mandate of the APRM is to encourage conformity in regard to political, economic, cooperative governance values, courts, and the standard among African countries and the objectives in socio-economic development within the new partnership for Africa's development. Benjamin Mkapa, former president of Tanzania, explains more. We have realized the importance of improving the structural system and the ethical ways of the Security Council of African Union, its membership, principles, financial capabilities, its capability on experts and mediators. That is one of the main things we recognized and will present it to the headquarters for further consideration. We have also come across reviewing the relationship of the regional communities which are dearly subjected to help on seeking negotiations whenever crises arise. The relationship of these integration roles and the African Security Council's ability and the advice machinery as a whole have to be reconsidered and we did these talks under the Chasm House rules which enable people to openly give their opinions without jeopardizing their positions with the host government and the international community. The former leaders also called on the current leaders to strengthen the continent's institutions tasked with the peace and the security matters. They furthermore called for the strengthening of in-country frameworks for stakeholder engagement and consultation and ensuring inclusive national discourse. The 2018 meeting was attended by five other former African heads of state, Olusegun Obasanjo of Nigeria, Bakili Muluzi of Malawi, Mohamed Marzuki from Tunisia, Jakaya Kikwete of Tanzania, and Hassan Sheh Mohamud of Somalia. 
The meeting also attended by over 100 key African leaders, experts and thinkers working on issues of peace and security, examined the complex dynamics that fuel conflicts on the continent and how Africa can practically navigate the dynamics to secure lasting peace. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now this coming Friday, the 25th of May, marks Africa Day. Executive Director of United Nations Women, Dr. Pumzilem Lambonuka, will deliver a lecture at the 9th Annual Tabombeki Africa Day Lecture in South Africa. The theme of the lecture is Gender Equity, a Necessary Paradigm shift for Africa's development. Now, this forms part of the many celebratory events that will be held on that day across the continent. We have now in studio Mr. Tami Ndenteni, the spokesperson of the Tabombeki Foundation. Good morning Mr. Ndenteni and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in your program. Africa Day, the 25th of May, it's coming up on Friday. Just how important is this day? It's very, very important. And uh, as you can see, the importance of it is actually reflected in the theme of the discussion that we're going to be having, which is, uh, as you have mentioned, uh, a paradigm shift in Africa's quest for democratization and development. Now, when you speak of a paradigm shift, we immediately think of a shift in the mindset and a shift in the in a particular state of mind Mm -hmm. and in this instance we're talking about uh, a mind shift in terms of how we have regarded women and how women have been treated in societies that have been defined and characterized mostly by patriarchal power relations and uh, we are then the view is that uh, and uh, it's no longer debatable that there cannot be a development, there cannot be sustainable development and achievement of the objectives of society whilst a large section or large part of the population as represented by women is on the Im- on the margins or is marginalized in terms of participation in the economy now in terms of uh, just speaking of the, the 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 theme for this year a paradigm shift as you mentioned it's all about mindset and ensuring um that uh, people understand what the shift is the paradigm shift is do you think africa as a whole as a continent and the world at large are they ready for this paradigm shift well most of the time when you speak of marginalization of a certain section of the population whether it's in terms of gender or whether it's in terms of race there is a particular group of people who benefit from that from an economic point of view so it therefore suggests that it entails struggle right those who benefit would not give easy in easily but uh, i think uh, having said that 
the majority of uh, people have now come to realize that if we are serious about development, if we are serious about improving the quality of life of our people, if we are serious about uh, improve, improving or moving away from gender-based inequality and patriarchal societies, then we've got to take this or to take the bull by the horns and address this question. That is precisely why we then have this lecture because it is a matter that has been in the public domain but we are now also reinforcing, reinforcing that people should begin to talk about it and come to an understanding that it is absolutely necessary. It is not for the benefit of women, it is for the benefit of us all. A powerful, a powerful woman will be giving the lecture. This is the former Deputy President of South Africa and uh, now the the head of uh, the UN Women, which, uh, which is uh, Dr. Pumzile Mlambonoka. Why in particular her? Is there a reason why you've chosen her to give the lecture for this year and the, the, the theme in particular for this year? Well, uh, I can't think of any other person better qualified to deliver the lecture other than herself. As you yourself have said, a powerful, powerful woman. Now, it's not just that, uh, I mean, it is um, the fact that uh, throughout her career, both as deputy president here in South Africa and even prior to that. Prior to that, definitely. Yes, uh, Dr. Pumzili Nguga has been seized and very passionate about matters pertaining to women equality and uh, equity and uh, the development of women. So it's something that she has been involved in over a long period of time and it therefore is very important that uh, she be the one who delivers this lecture. Mr. Dendeni, looking at uh, South Africa as a country, for instance, and the political or the parliamentary stand at this point in time, being one of the um, um, one of the parliaments or, or countries or governments where women in leadership are, are in high numbers uh, compared to other countries, especially on the African continent, for instance, um, just bearing that in mind, speaking of the the um, what's the word the confidence of a woman or the development of a woman for instance and uh, ensuring that uh, looking at women in parliament and in leadership in government as young women or women in South Africa and on the continent looking at the one part of economic development empowerment and then there's another side where women are are not treated as as well as they should be, as you mentioned. <clears throat> I, beg your, I beg your pardon. Now, there's an issue, for instance, uh, reception from other African countries apart from South Africa. Sudan, for instance, there's a young woman um, who is who has been sentenced to um, f- to death row for fatally stabbing a man who she was married off to by her family at a young age. And this man tried to allegedly rape her, 
whom she then stabbed, fatally stabbed, and now she's been put on trial and has been sentenced to death. There's a worry. Um, UN Human Rights Office has come out and said they are worried about people who are working with her to try and her sister. Countries like Sudan, or with the mindset of, of, of uh, not of not taking women seriously or treating women um, as, as unequal to men. What do you say about this? Is this lecture going to address some of those issues, apart from the economic side of things, apart from the empowering of women, where women and young girls are not treated as equals? Precisely, precisely. The example that you are making about the Sudan is a very is a very pertinent one because even here in South Africa we've had situations where there is uh, where there's been elements or violence 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 directed against women and women experience this this violence from their partners they experience this violence at home they experience it in in the workplace, not only just physical violence, they are also exposed to psychological violence. Mm-hmm. And all of these matters are matters that have to be addressed. And uh, if we speak about this matter of the Sudan, it therefore means that uh, it is a problem that needs to be addressed and uh, relates to not just a particular country or a particular... It's not unique to a particular country. Mm -hmm. It's a global problem. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem that has to be addressed globally. And I think also very important that we have Pumzile Mlambunguka who is at the United Nations and who is in the portfolio dealing with women. Obviously, these are questions that have been there over a long period of time. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of struggle that we have to go through in order to actually deal with these deal problems, with these so problems and, yes, and eliminate these problems from society. Very quickly, I have, we have run out of time. Who just Can anyone attend the lecture? Is it by invitation? What is the, what is the stance going forward with the lecture? Yes, it is, a, it is a, a public lecture. However, we sent out invitations and people had to RSVP. As matters stand now, uh, the, the venue that has been booked in UNISA, which takes more than a thousand people, is fully booked. So it's not uh, private, but uh, we have to RSVP because of limitations of space. space. Mm. Yes. Mr. Ndeni, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I would have liked to take this further, um, but we'll leave it there for now. And uh, if we don't chat to you, but I'm sure we will, um, probably on the day or after the lecture has taken place, uh, and just to find out what the reaction was from the people attending the lecture. And obviously, I'm sure it will be broadcast on our different uh, channels. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That was uh, Mr. Tamin Dendeni, spokesperson at the Tabo Mbeki Foundation, just giving us an update of the lecture that will be taking place on May the 25th, which marks Africa Day on that particular day. And uh, we will have Executive Director of the United Nations Women, Dr. Pumzile Mlambo Nguka, a 
delivering the lecture at the 9th annual Tabombeki Africa Day Lecture in South Africa. Hi, I'm Pule Molebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, at least 22 people have been killed and others are still missing following torrential rains from a tropical cyclone that hit Somalia. Health workers in the Democratic Republic of Congo are beginning a vaccination campaign aimed at containing an outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus and Kenya's Director of Criminal Investigation says more than 40 people have been summoned for questioning in connection with what he describes as a Massive theft of public funds. Those are the stories making headlines. It's 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The Ebola hemorrhagic fever hitting the Democratic Republic of Congo's province of Equator has reached a new phase as it's now reported in three health zones. The situation has caused panic as people fear the outbreak might reach the DRC's capital, Kinshasa. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The situation in the Equator province in the northwest of the Democratic Republic of Congo is now worrying after two more suspect Ebola cases have been reported in two different health zones. The new cases were notified this week in both the Wangata and Bandaka health zones and indeed this represents a serious threat as the outbreak has been reported in the town of more than one million inhabitants. Bandaka is the capital city of the Equator province. A team of epidemiologists including both local and international has been deployed in the Bandaka town. Dr. Oli Ilunga is the DRC Minister of Public Health. We have now entered a new phase of the Ebola as the outbreak has reached the three health zones. Since the alert erupted in Bandaka, experts are busy on the field to try and identify people who have been in touch with suspect cases. It's indeed the list of contacts that will help to launch the new way of response and that's the vaccination the World Health Organization has made available. The vaccines will be used in this country for the very first time starting to next week. 
The eruption of the Ebola epidemic in the Equator province has then created a serious panic among people even here in Kinshasa. Most of those met here have expressed the fear since the outbreak might reach Kinshasa. Among the people who accepted to share their fears with Channel Africa is Miss Eyenga who uses to go on business trips between Kinshasa and Bandaka. I'm a businesswoman. I always come and sell fish here in Kinshasa, but I can't travel anymore since Ebola has been reported in Bandaka. I'm really afraid I might get contaminated even through water as we travel on the Congo River. The outbreak started in Bikoro and it's now in Bandaka. I'll start doing my business just here in Kinshasa. The other lady who accepted to talk to us is Miss Boketu, who was preparing to go on a family visit in Bandaka, but can't do so due to the presence of the Ebola epidemic in the town. I was preparing myself for a visit in Equator, especially in Bandaka, but I can't go there due to this Ebola. I'm staying here in Kinshasa, but I'm now afraid it might arrive here as well and infect me. But I'm keeping clean and I've stopped to eat meat from the forest. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization prepared an emergency meeting here in Kinshasa this Friday to consider the international risk of this deadly disease that continues to raise fears despite the rapid response. At least 23 people have been killed by Ebola since it was reported in the Bikoro Health Zone about two weeks ago and up to now more than 40 suspected or confirmed cases have been notified around Bikoro close to the Congo River and around 150 kilometers from Bandaka, the capital city of the province of Equator. Jean-Noël Pamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The pace of formulating child-friendly tuberculosis drugs is too slow and long overdue. The World Health Organization estimates that there are a million children under 15 years suffering from TB worldwide and that more than 210,000 die each year. But there's a belief that the numbers could be higher than estimated. Yet there are no child-appropriate drugs to manage the disease in children. Tabilembele reports. Diagnosing TB in children is difficult as children are less likely to have obvious symptoms of TB and it's almost impossible to collect sputum samples from children. Those who have been diagnosed, though, struggle with treatment. Dr. David Moore is from the Pediatrics and Child Health Department at Verts University and Chris Hani Baragwanath Hospital. Our clinical experience has shown that the first-line agents and in the current formulation that we use are very good at treating tuberculosis in children. However, we don't have child-friendly formulations of the anti-TB drugs. The anti-TB treatment that we use to treat even small babies is uh, in tablet form. The taste of these medicines isn't all that appropriate for for pediatric patients, so it needs a lot of manipulation of the tablets and a lot of mathematical skill in order to uh, deliver the correct dose of the medication to the children. Dr. Moore says pediatricians, GPs and nurses have been lobbying for child-friendly formulations for decades now. He says there are studies among adults to try and reduce the duration of treatment, which is currently six months for normal TB and can go up to two years for drug-resistant TB. However, there's still little progress in pediatrics. The drug companies have been rather slow on the uptake in terms of developing these regimens. Another important development which we could find motivate for 
would be to try and decrease the time period that's needed to treat children for tuberculosis, which would obviously optimize the adherence to therapy. However, such uh, short-course anti-TB drug trials are few and far between in pediatric patients. Dr. Precious Mutsuso, the Director General in the National Health Department, says they've been in discussions with relevant stakeholders to come up with TB drug formulations for children. She says the discussions are still in infancy stages and possibly not moving fast enough. Matsusu says they are also looking at models to come up with innovative treatment for TB, which will be simpler, shorter and safer. Well, pediatric TB, we're still struggling with the formulations, but we've come up with something called the Life Prize, which is a research and development initiative to come up with innovative ideas by which we can develop pediatric appropriate formulations, not these formulations that are for adults and they are just adopted for young children. The Innovative Pharmaceutical Association of South Africa says it's also concerned about suitable medicines for pediatrics. Chief Executive Officer Dr. Konji Sibati says a number of their companies are working on pediatric formulations which are undergoing clinical trials. This can take 8 to 10 years of research and development to find a safe, effective medical product, especially for children and pregnant women. Add another four years for registration in South Africa. Meanwhile, South Africa, like other countries, is eagerly awaiting the first high-level meeting of heads of states to be held at the United Nations headquarters in September. TB will top the agenda and governments have to commit to efforts to reduce the burden of disease. I'm Tabilem Bele in Johannesburg. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoku. Good morning. The G20 foreign ministers meeting is underway in St. San Martin Palace in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The G20 consists of the leading developed and developing economies with an intention of seeking a collective response to global economic and financial challenges, issues of peace and security, and global governance. South Africa's Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Luel Hernandez, was speaking on the margins of the meeting. South Africa being the only uh, member state from the African continent has a key role to play as usual in ensuring that matters that affect the continent are addressed and uh, solutions sought. Uh, In addition to that, the G20 has now expanded its role to not just deal with matters of finance and the economy, Uh, of the world and uh, of member states, but also on conflict situations such as those taking place in Syria, Yemen and uh, Israel-Palestine. The Chinese Vice Premier Liu He has described a deal with the U.S. as a win-win choice. This comes after the two countries agreed to back away from imposing trade tariffs on each other's goods that had threatened a trade war costing billions of dollars. The U.S. Secretary Treasury, Stephen Muchachind, says that the Trump administration will suspend plans to introduce restrictions and make time to work on a wider trade agreement. The BBC's Joe Lehner reports. 
Last week, a delegation of senior Chinese representatives visited the U.S. to find a way of preventing a looming trade war between the world's two largest economies. Today, Beijing said it would buy more U.S.-made energy and agricultural goods, but did not give any details. That appears to have done enough to put the U.S. trade sanctions on hold, which had been said to come into force on Monday. On the campaign trail two years ago, Donald Trump accused China of raping the U.S. through its trade policies and stealing American intellectual property. Ethiopian Airways has announced that it plans to buy new regional jets in the next month or so as it prepares to relaunch Zambia Airways. According to Chief Executive Officer Tawilda Gabriel-Miriam, the airline has narrowed its choice to Bombardier Corporation C-Series and Embraer SA's E2 Family E195. Gabriel-Miriam says Boeing Corporation 737 MAX 7 is now out of the running for the contract, which could feature 10 firm orders and the same number of options. He says that there are no more pressing fleet requirements, although the airline could decide to add more Boeing 787 Dreamliners and Airbus SEA350s. Kenya will start the small-scale export of crude oil from its fields in the far northern county of Takanda in June after an agreement on how to share the revenue, averting delays. Talo Oil and its partner, Africa Oil, discovered commercial reserves in the Lokichar Basin in 2012. Total has since taken a 25% stake. A row had broken out after President Duhuri Kenyatta cut the share of the Takana County government to 15% and that of the local community to 5%, leaving the rest to the national government. Egypt's Beltone Financial is seeking a controlling stake in Aura Group, which owns banks in 12 African countries, as the company looks to expand its financial services on the African continent. Beltone Financial is listed on the Cairo Exchange and is one of the country's largest asset managers and financial services companies. It did not disclose the exact size of the stake it is looking to acquire or the potential terms. Aura Group has 143 branches serving more than 400,000 clients in 12 African countries in Western and Central Africa. The U.S. dollar trades at 977 Botswana Pula. It's at 1011 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar trades at 373 Brazilian Real, at 6233 Russian Ruble, and at 6791 Indian Rupee. 637 Chinese Yuan, 1274 to the South African Rand, 74 pence British Pound, 84 cents Euro, Gold $1292, Platinum $884 an ounce, at the price of brand crude oil is at $79. Two nine cents barrel. I'm Tabi Solohoku from the SABC's International Channel. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Figile, there is major things I, I always say to you on a monday there's so much happening in sports in this country and now we have um a former spring bok um a, a former sp- a bocker uh and uh a, a, was he a he won an he award sp- i think yeah he was a win rugby player of the year he, well from under 20 he's been from like, under 20 he's from been under 20 he's played for this for the box the junior box the spring box uh, international games world cup so he's 
He's, he's a, a seasoned yeah, player. I think he's a, he's, he's a very the good player. The hashtag Ashwin Vilimsa. Yeah, no, it's, it's a reaction to what transpired at the weekend from all quarters. Everybody, even those who don't know rugby, even those who have not, uh, haven't been watching the analysis of rugby from a long time ago, because uh, this is what is happening all, t- all the time in, in, in the analysis from analysts themselves, like exchanging. And now it's, uh, it's something that I think when, when the, uh, some other people analyze it, it's been happening, it was boiling, simmering, in the fact. The room dividers, yeah, for so, instance. Yeah, so it's now come out in the open. Mm. And mm. the reaction from, from government, from the Minister of Sports, uh, um, Togozile Kasa, as well. Yeah, no, it's, 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 but I wouldn't, I don't, it's government. Government mm. will have the legislation to think about what they should do. Mm. But I would say, uh, let the investigation take place. Everybody should be given a chance to say whatever that they said and then watch the whole video and watch and, and get the, the and information. Sort of find out exactly the, the, what the happened before. Yeah. Mm. So we can know what, how to react into such a, 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 a an outburst mm. from all quarters. Mm. But it's something that we know, uh, but it's not something that has been written about most of the time. Amajita? Oh, Amajita now <laughs> left with uh, just one hurdle against uh, Malawi. He, they will be meeting Malawi later on. And if they beat Malawi, then they go to the AFCON, and AFCON will give them a chance to go to the World Cup if they come out number four. In, in the Afcon. And speaking of the World Cup, how many days to go? Oh, we left with only uh, just 20, 20 25. S- yeah, somewhere 20, around 24, there. 25 days to go to the World Cup. And then uh, games are wrapping up. So most of them wrapped up at the weekend from international games. I'm talking about the uh, Barcelona players who mm. are international. They have to go back to the national teams as well as the FA Cup at the weekend from England. Players have to leave as well. And then the announcement of the professional teams will have to end this week so we can get to know who's playing, who's not, who's injured, who's not. Well, give us an update. In our sports update, we're looking at football news. The Ivory Coast Football Federation has asked Sports Highest Court to review FIFA's latest decision to audit the football body. FIFA has ordered an audit of FIF, the second in two months. But FIF has filed an appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, to seek help with understanding FIFA's decision. The audit order is regarded as a distraction to Ivorian football, which is keen to find the right man to be the new national team coach by June. The two-time African champions are looking for a successor to their former boss, the Belgian, Mark Wilmot. And the Beggar King sponsored South African National Under-20 Men's Team, Amajita, have advanced to the third and the final round of the CAF Under-20 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers. This comes after they thrashed Mozambique 3-0 at Muruleng Stadium in South Africa's Northwest Province on Sunday afternoon in the second league, second round qualifier, winning 4-1 on aggregate after the first leg ended one all. And the winner will qualify for the 2019 CAF Africa Cup of Nations to be hosted by Niger, where the two four countries at an eight-nation event will qualify for the 2019 FIFA Under-20 World Cup, which will be held in Poland. And as we wrap up with the stories that is making headline, the Department of Sport and Recreation of South Africa says it is shocked at the alleged racist behavior against Velemse, that is Ashwin Velemse, who walked off the set of the Supersport during the analysis of the match between the Lions 
and the Brumbies. Here is the department spokesperson, Vuyo Maga. It continues to reflect some form of entitlement among the white South African population who think because of their color of their skin, they are entitled to some of the things. And actually they can treat black players as if they are some form of a token. And that we can't stand as the ministry. The sports management will meet, that super sports for that matter, will meet this morning following the alleged racist incident against rugby analyst Ashwin Vellemsi. It says it's investigating the incident but adds that it cannot yet say whether those involved will be suspended. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, African countries urged to embrace the African peer review mechanism and G20 foreign affairs ministers meet in Argentina. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsura Magadza and Komutsumo Pulane, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, Thank you for joining us.